If you have your Bible, uh, and I hope that you do, and I want to encourage and invite you to open it to Psalm 67 as we continue our study, our proclaimed series through uh, uh, called "Until the Whole World In," the whole, until the whole world hears. Psalm 67 is where we'll be beginning. If you don't know where the psalm is, uh, if you're new and that's okay, uh, simply divide your Bible almost in half. Try to do a little more towards the front of the Bible, and you will open. You'll get pretty close to the Psalms. If you hit Proverbs, Song of Solomon, or Ecclesiastes, you've gone a little too far, back it back up to the front, and you'll make it to Psalm 67. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, that's okay. There's probably somebody around you who does, and they would be glad to share that word with you, or you can pull it up on your phone if you have one of those apps. Psalm 67. I want to start my sermon out this morning with a story, and the story is designed to show you where I'm praying God would lead us today. A couple of years ago, I was invited to preach in Tokyo, Japan. I was humbled and thankful that our brothers and sisters in Christ over in Japan wanted me to bring the word of God to them on that Sunday morning. It was a small church, uh, Japan. It was called Praise Church Tokyo, and they met in an apartment flat above a curry restaurant. So sometimes the curry smell would come up to the, to the floor, either making you hungry or making you not so hungry. I don't know. It depends on your love of food. Now, I don't speak very good Japan, uh, Japanese, excuse me, because, yeah, as you can tell, I don't speak very good Japanese. Uh, I speak just enough of Japanese to get myself around Tokyo. All right. I don't, I don't have enough Japanese to speak the depths and truths of scripture. So I had a translator with me. So it made for a very long sermon. Uh, I would speak and then she would speak and then I would speak and she would speak. It was a good time. But at the end, I uh, got done preaching and I turned Psalm 67. I preached Psalm 67 that morning and I turned it back over to that pastor. And he came and he stood before the people and I went to my seat in the front and he began to pray. At the end of the prayer, he said, Amen, which in Japanese is Amen. So I knew that one. And I went to sit down. But as I went to sit down, I heard a voice in the back begin to speak. So I stood up real quick, not knowing what was taking place, but I could hear in the voice of this person in the back that they were praying to God. And I was amazed and I was like, oh, okay, so maybe he called on somebody to pray after he prayed. After that person got done praying, I heard another pray. I heard another pray. I heard another pray and another pray. Ten minutes went by of this corporate time of prayer in this little apartment flat in the middle of Tokyo Japan. I could tell by the voices and the tone of their voices that they were burdened and that they were pleading with God. In fact, I was nearly, I could feel the spirit moving so magnificently that I was nearly driven to tears. Nearly. I'm not a big crier. At the end of the service, I walked up to the pastor and I said, Pastor, what? What just happened? In my many years of ministry, I have never seen a congregation respond to God's word that way. What what just happened? He said, your message, the Lord impressed upon us so deeply, moved us so divinely that we grew in our burden to the Lord for our people. Psalm 67, when it says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, we thought to ourselves, the Japanese are a part of those nations. 
And many people don't know this, but Japan is actually what we consider an unreached people group, which means that they are less than 1% Christian. In fact, the numbers that we have are they're about 0.03% Christians moving around millions of people in Japan. And that church began to pray and say, God, use us. Use us to push back the darkness here. I tell you that story because that's my prayer and has been my prayer for you all week. Is that you would have that same response to God's word in Psalm 67. That that you would be, Lord, use us to push back the darkness in this world. To be light shining in a dark world. To be salt in a world of death and decay. And God, no matter what it costs us, no matter what you call us to do, you are worthy and we're going to do it. Psalm 67, the reason why they sat in that time of corporate prayer is because Psalm 67 is actually a corporate prayer in the book of Psalms. Now, it has been used as a song as well, but, but scholars think that Psalm 67 was a, was a corporate prayer that took place after a harvest happened. We don't know the author and we don't know the necessary, the, the time that this psalm was, was penned and written, but we do know that it was, a, it was a corporate prayer. And the way that we do know that it was a corporate prayer was look at verse 1. Look what they say. May God be gracious to what? To who? Us. There's a corporate sense to, to us. May God be gracious. Uh, may, may God be gracious to us. And what? Bless us. You can say that. And make your face shine upon us. There's a communal corporate aspect that they are lifting up to God. But also we see some harvest language in here. For example, look at verse 6. So verse 6 says what? The earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. What does it mean that the earth yields its increase? It's a harvest. They've harvested something in this time and they are reaching out and praying and asking God to do something with their blessing to push back the darkness and reach the nations. So, in honor of Psalm 67 being a corporate prayer, what I'm going to ask is for every single person to stand in the honor and reading of God's word. So let's stand up, man, woman, and child. And let's read Psalm 67 together as a prayer to God on behalf of Sinner Church. It begins this way. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want you to notice something about this psalm in terms of its structure as we get started this morning. If you look at verses 1 and 2, they directly correspond to verses 6 and 7. It is a, a request, a, a, a ask, a supplication for blessing. But then verses 3 and 5 actually repeat themselves. And it is a call to worship. 
So we see a request for blessing and then we see a call to worship in verses uh, 3 and 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. But then when we get to verse 4, which I think is the pinnacle of the prayer, because the pinnacle of the prayer focuses specifically on the character and nature of God. They say this, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the people's with equity, and you guide all the nations on the earth. Y'all see it? Blessing, call to worship, and a praise of who God is. So here's what I want to do. I need to begin by kind of helping us to understand the totality of the psalm without bringing some of our, our theological baggage into the equation, if you will. What does these people mean by God bless us? You see, I think a lot of Christians in our American context, they like the idea of asking God to bless me. God bless me with a boat. And I'm only saying this because this is kind of where I am right now. God bless me with a shotgun. Dove season's coming around the corner in September. God bless us with a, with a house. Bless us with a 401k, a big bank account. Bless us with a car. Bless us, bless us, bless us. And so when we read a psalm like Psalm 67 in verse 1, and it says, may God be gracious to us and, and bless us and make his face shine upon us, American Christians are like, amen. Best psalm on the planet. But what's their motivation? Their motivation is found in verse 2. That your ways may be known on the earth. That your saving power be known among all the nations. What? What are these people praying for? They're not praying simply for material gain and wealth. This is the problem with the health, wealth, and happiness, prosperity gospel. The name it and claim it and get what I want. Which makes God into this really big Santa Claus who he's not. The idea is here is they're saying, God, bless us in such a way that people notice and we will take and use that blessing to advance the blesser. That, Lord, what you have given me in this life to steward, may I use every single piece of what you have given me, no matter how little or how big, may you use this material as a means to point people to the Messiah. You see what their motivation is? Even at the verses, because I told you verses 1 and 2 are a recapitulation of 6 and 7. Look at 6 and 7 say, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. What does it say at the end? Let all the earth, what? Fear him. You see the connection? Give us this harvest so that when people come and ask us, What's different about you? Why do you have this harvest? I can turn and point them not to the blessing. I can turn and point them not to the harvest. I can turn and plant them, point them not to what I have, but I can point them to the one who gave it. But number two, look what the purpose also becomes here in this text. So not only do we have to push against this idea of the prosperity gospel, we have to also understand who God is. When you read a psalm like this, so we don't necessarily know the author, but we do know that all scripture is inspired by God. So this is letters and words from God to us. So God wrote Psalm 67. You want to kind of get the big picture view. And I think some people in our culture, they think to themselves, well, God, God kind of seems like a very insecure, needing the needy God that needs the praises of people. 
Like that's kind of a that's kind of a weird way to say, like, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Like, is our God some type of needy God who just needs the praises of his people to validate his self-worth? The answer is no. Thank you, Pastor Kyle. He shook his head no in the back. And Katie too. Amen. The answer is no. The reality of the psalm is is not about God just needing our praise because God is perfect in every way. He doesn't need our praise. There is no wanting in God. God has everything that he ever will need, has needed, and has ever always had. Everything that comes out of him is good and perfect, and he has zero need. But the goodness of God is revealed in verse 4. When verse 4 talks about, let the people's praise you, O God... I mean, excuse me, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. They are pointing to two aspects of who God is. His justice, you judge the peoples, and his sovereignty, you guide the nations. So you've got to remember that we flip it. We try to make God about needing our joy, but in all reality, listen to me very closely, this is the second thing that we need to clear up, is this. You ready? God knows that our greatest joy and our greatest, greatest gladness comes in Him. Why do the nations be glad and sing for joy? Because God is just. Why do the nations be glad and sing for joy? Because God is sovereign. It's who He is. Our joy as Christians is not rooted in the things of this earth. It is rooted solely in the Lord. The nations are glad and sing for joy because they are singing for joy that they have a relationship with God and they know who He is. There's a catechism that I, I like to read through on occasion called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it, says that it, asks, it has a question and response type form. And in the question it says, what is the chief end of man? And the response to that question, what is our chief end, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our chief end. Our joy and our gladness is tied directly to God, not what God has given us or not having given us. I think John Piper in his book, uh, Desiring God, which is an older book, but I think uh, it's a great book. I still like to read it on occasion. But he makes a case to change the wording of that catechism by one word. He makes the concept, he says, the chief end of man is to glorify God, not and enjoy him, but By enjoying Him forever. The psalmist is showing us that the greatest joy and gladness you can ever have in life is a relationship with God. But how often do we get this messed up? I know I do in my own life. Let me give you an example. When I went to college, I had three goals in college. Marry Katie. Check. Graduate. C for credit, check, and pin on my Marine Corps bars, check. And I thought for those five years, all right, let's stop right here. Let me caveat something. We're going to take Katie out of this equation for now. That was just one of my goals, okay? Are you with me? So we're just going to focus on school and the Marine Corps. Thank you. I thought for those five years, like, man, if I just walked across that stage and I got that diploma from Texas A&M University, that, man, at that point, my joy would be full. And then I would walk and I'd put on my uniform and I'd walk across the next stage and I'd put on those second lieutenant bars and I thought then my joy would be full. But do you know what happened? 
the joy wear off. I was like, man, I, like even to this day, I, I don't look at that same Texas A&M diploma with the same amount of joy that I did when I earned it on that day. Five years of my life I gave to finding joy in school and in the Marine Corps. But then those, the, the, the brass, the, the polish of that brass began to fade in my heart. And I'm like, this doesn't bring much joy. Okay, let's go back to John. Well, what I'll do then is I'll go to seminary and I'll get my, I'll earn my Master of Divinity. I'll do over 80 hours of master's level courses. I'll earn my Master of Divinity. Then I'll find joy. So I worked hard, got my Master of Divinity, put on my awesome new master's robe, and I walked across and I got that diploma from Dr. Danny Aiken. And I was like, oh, it's so exciting. But then about a week later, guess what? It was just another piece of paper on the wall. Well, maybe, okay, maybe it was, that wasn't big enough. So let's go get your Master of Theology, Jeremy. So I did two more years of Master of Theology, put on my Master's robes again, walked across the stage, shook Danny Aiken's hand, and I was like, today I have joy. You know what happened? It became another piece of paper. Well, maybe my PhD. Actually, by then, God has changed me too much that I don't even care about my PhD anymore. The point is, is that If you try to put your joy and gladness into things of this earth, they will always fail you. If you try to find joy in your bank account, joy in your relationships, joy in your children, joy in your career, it will always fail you. Because the only everlasting eternal joy that we as human beings can ever receive made in God's image is God himself. That's why they say, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Because they will glorify him by enjoying him forever. Notice in in the same verse, verse 4, notice the two aspects of God's character on reveal. Number one we see is justice. He says, you will what? You will judge the peoples with equity. You will will judge the peoples without being partial. So you're not going to say, well, this person's going to get this kind of judgment because, you know, I kind of like them, but this person, they're not going to get that kind of grace because I don't necessarily like them that much. Like, that's not the way God works. God works out of his justice based on his holiness. That's why when Paul says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he's saying that's God's justice undisplayed for sin. You see, if God ever overlooks your sin without doing something about it, then he no longer becomes just and he no longer remains holy. I believe justice and holiness are tied together. But I also see in this text that justice is also tied to God's grace and mercy. God loves people so much, all the peoples, all the nations so much that he said, I got to do something about their sin, but I can't overlook their sin. I still have to punish their sin in enters Jesus. Okay, somebody should have said amen right there in enters Jesus. And Jesus comes and he has zero sin in him. And and God says, you're going to live the life that they were supposed to live, but they can't because they're broken and sinful. He says, now what I'm going to do, Jesus, is I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you on a cross. And I'm going to take every single one of their sins that they will ever commit against me. And I'm going to place them on you, my son, and I'm going to pour out my wrath on you. I'm going to punish sin Not on them who deserves the punishment, but on you, the one who doesn't deserve the punishment. Why? Because through you, I can reconnect to them. You see the justice and how it's tied to God's grace and love? So that way, God remains just because he punished his son for our sin. But then that's also how he can forgive you and extend his blessing and his grace to you and to me. And that message should stir within us hearts 
who long to see all peoples worshiping that kind of God. Right? Isn't that message worthy of proclaiming all the time with our words and our deeds? There's no greater message, no greater message on this planet other than God has saved you through his son. But also we see God's sovereignty. And they cry out, the nations are going to be glad to sing for joy because you're sovereign. You, you guide everybody. You guide the entire nations on the earth. This is saying that God sovereignly rules and reigns over everything. You know what that does for us as Christians? That gives us confidence. That means I can go to the far places of the earth. I can go and suffer for Jesus. I can go and possibly die for my faith. But you know what? I have confidence because God is sovereign over it all. He controls my story. He controls my life. And I can trust him because I've seen people trust him from Genesis to Revelation. And so therefore, his sovereignty causes within me a stirring to go to the nations no matter what it might cost. Because he is worth it, right? Here's what I want you to see. The reason why I think verse 4 is the pinnacle of this psalm is because, listen church, if we don't have a big great, magnificent, scriptural view of God, we will never be on God's mission. Churches who have a small view of who God is will be churches who are not very missional. Churches who see the the magnitude of God from the word of God being preached every single time they gather together. When people begin to see this magnificent, glorious God that we are worshiping this morning... It's from that that drives us to be on mission for Him. The more you will love and cherish God, the more you'll talk about Him with others. Worship of God in a church directly relates to the mission of that church. And my job, and Pastor Kyle's job, is to show you the biggest picture of God that we can through the Scriptures. So that way... When you begin to look and say, oh, I want to glorify God because I enjoy him. Your enjoyment is going to come when you begin to share him with others. So what does God mean then in this text when he says, let the peoples praise you and let the nations be glad? Like, who are the peoples and who are the nations? I'm glad you asked. I would like to answer that question for you. Now, when we think of nations and peoples in this text, it is not a geopolitical climate like we think of today. In fact, the geopolitical climate, like the nations of our day, like when you get a globe and you look at it with all the places on it and all the lines that are drawn with all the borders around it, Psalm 67 had no idea what that was. So what does God mean then by peoples and nations? Well, the first text that we read this morning was in Genesis 12, 3. So I want to show you the extent of peoples and nations. First off, God shows us that he, what he means by peoples and nations is found in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, God says. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. Listen, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So peoples and nations can be as small as families. But also... 
If you look at Revelation and John's vision in the book of Revelation, when God gives him a vision of the throne room in verse chapter seven, verse nine, we read after this, John said, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. So that could be a big people from all tribes. So that could be small people from and peoples and languages. So there's obviously a part of these peoples and nations that talks about a different language. And what are they doing? They're standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And you know what they're saying? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the peoples and nations are gathered around the throne room of grace, worshiping the God who saved them through the blood of Jesus. So, peoples, nations can be as small as families and as big as a national people. So there's a, there's a website that I would highly encourage you to invest in. It look like not, you don't pay for it, it's free, but to actually like go and look at it. It's called the Joshua Project. And the Joshua Project has a group, uh, they have identified people groups. And what they've done is they've identified the, the amount of people groups, kind of going along with this people's nations terminology of Psalm 67. They've identified people groups based off of common language and culture. Language and culture. And they have decided and kind of worked through this systematically, and they found that there are over 17,000 17, people groups in our world right now. Okay, it's pretty big, right? Are you ready for the bad news? Out of that 17,000 people group, over 7,000 of them do not have access to the gospel. Over 7,000 people groups do not have access to the gospel. When I say they don't have access, that means they don't have a Bible. That means they don't have a gospel presence. There's no missionary there. There's nobody working to advance the gospel. They don't have any church. They don't have any church that's designed to raise up elders and equip people to do the, saint, the work for the saints of ministry. These people, these over these 7,000 people groups, they will grow up living in hell on earth just to die to go to eternity in hell. And we, church, have the only message of salvation for them. And they can't praise Jesus. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. They can't praise him until somebody goes and tells them. And guess who he's given that task to? You, me, that's why this series is called proclaim until the whole world hears. We have the only message of salvation for these 7000 people groups. Is it going to be hard? Yes. Is it going to be uncomfortable? Yes. Is it going to be costly? Yes. Will you suffer? Probably. Will you maybe die? Maybe. But guess what? Is God not worth it all? All to him I owe. The, song, the hymn says, right? All to him I owe. So here's my final application for today. How? How will the nations be glad and sing for joy? How will the peoples praise you, O oh God? How will the peoples praise you? So here's four ways. Four ways today that you at Center Church, Brenham, can begin to see Psalm 67, come to fruition. Are you ready? You're not ready. Number one, we pray. We pray. This psalm is a psalm of prayer. We pray together. We pray and say, Lord, 
Use me. Lord, how will you use me to take the gospel to them? Lord, how will you how will you use me and my family to advance your kingdom? We began to pray. Do you remember? It's, I think it's no coincidence that in Luke's gospel, that Luke records Jesus's teachings to his disciples. Do you remember this, where they come and he says, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, "The harvest is plentiful." I think that connects very well to Psalm sixty-seven, verse six: "The earth has yielded its increase." Jesus says, "The harvest is plentiful," and he's talking about people who need him. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what is he command? He doesn't just say go yet. He doesn't say just give. What does he tell them to do? Pray to the Lord of the harvest. To send out the laborers into the harvest. So Center Church, I want you to begin to pray today. And here's a couple of ways you can do that. Number one, when you go to the Joshua Project, they have an unreached people group of the day. You can actually... Submit your name and they'll email it to you on a daily basis. And every day when that email comes to you and it's an unreached people group, just go through those prayer prompts and pray for them. Lord, provide an opportunity for a missionary to get over there. Provide an opportunity for their Bible, for a Bible to be created in their language. Pray for an opportunity to send me to them if you call me to do that. Number two, as a, as a family, pray and adopt a people group. Our family has adopted the Japanese people. And so on occasion, we try to turn and we pray with our children for the lostness of the world around us. But also pray that Center Church would be a sending church. If you're a partner here, you should be praying for this church on a daily basis. Because you know, I want you to know that your staff prays for you on a daily basis. Pray that God would use Center Church to be a sending church. Pray that God would maybe pull some of us out of here to go to the nations. Pray that, that God would pull some of us out of here to go plant churches who plant churches who plant churches. And over time, God will multiply the planting efforts of Center Church. And God will multiply the missionary vision of Center Church. And it will begin to reach those 7,000 7, people groups that need to hear about Him. Pray. I often think that churches who are stagnant in mission are churches who are stagnant in prayer. Oh, Pastor Jeremy, you're stepping on my toes. Prayer is the focus. Because prayer recognizes, I'm not dependent on myself in this. I'm dependent on the one who is just and sovereign. And we're asking him to lead us in the direction he would have us go. So pray. Pray. Number two, we speak. We speak. Look at verse 1. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. But then look at verse 2. That your way may be known on earth, that your saving power among all nations. Do you see that? Well, how, are the, how is His work and His saving power going to be made known from their blessing? Somebody's got to tell them. Right? Somebody's got to tell them. So I think first one and verse two implies proclaiming the gospel. When people come up to you and ask you for the hope that is in you, you point them to Jesus. When God comes up and says, or when people come up to you and say, how does your marriage look the way that it does? Or how does your family look that way? Or how does your life look this way? Or why do you work this way? You point them to Jesus as fast as you can. We speak. They will never believe if we don't speak up. But here's the, here's my problem with our churches. 
And I will include us in that. One of the reasons that we don't speak up is because I think we've become numb to the gospel. We're just like, yeah, I got my Jesus. I'm good. And we no longer have excitement about what Jesus has done. It's because we're not excited about what Jesus has done in our lives, and because we're not excited about the glory and greatness of God that we see in the Scriptures, the gospel never crosses our lips. Have you ever met somebody that got engaged? No, maybe. Are you okay? Let me let me caveat real quick. I believe that marriage and the gift of singleness are equals. I think the church has done a poor job focusing on the gift of singleness. But what I want to do is that for the sake of illustration, I want to talk about engagement. Okay? Thank you. What happens when somebody first gets engaged? They don't stop talking about it. They send out magnets. Save the date. We're engaged. She goes around and tells everybody, you're never going to believe somebody actually asked me to marry him. He's going to go around and be like, you're never going to believe she actually said yes. I got to tell you about it. I got to tell you about this woman or this man who, who we're going to join together in holy matrimony. And I don't care who does, who need, everybody needs to know this truth. Everybody needs to know this message because I have to tell the goodness that me and so and so are engaged. But what happens after about one year of marriage? Five years of marriage? Ten years of marriage? Fifteen years of marriage? Uh, that kind of starts to wear off a little bit, doesn't it? It starts to wear off a little bit. I tell, I tell children, no, I don't tell children. I tell my, the people that I counsel in premarital counseling, I, I always go like, this is great, I'm excited for your love, but I just want you to, I'm just, I just don't want to sugarcoat it for you, but marriage is work. And like by the end of our six weeks together, they're always like, yeah, marriage is work, Jeremy. Yeah, marriage is work, Jeremy. And then they always call about a year later and they're like, hey, did you know marriage is work? I did. So I told you over and over again. But what happens? Do we just walk up to people and be like, hey, my name's Jeremy, and I, I just can't tell you, I want you to, I'm, I'm married to Katie, I love her to death. That's just the first thing I want you to know about me. No, we typically don't start out that way, do we? After about one, five, ten years, we become kind of numb to the love we have because we just grow closer together and we just enjoy each other's company, but we just don't feel like we have to share it with each other. The problem is, church, is that Jesus is more superior than your spouse. His love is greater than your spouse's love will ever be for you. You know how I know that? Because he died for you. Your spouse didn't. And if this is how much we love God, because of what we see God's love do for us in Christ, and the more we grow in our love of the gospel, and the more the deeper the gospel becomes to us, then the more we begin to open our mouths. Perhaps some of you in this room, the reason why you're not sharing is because you've become numb to the gospel. And it's happened because of one of three reasons. Number one, you stop praying. Stop spending time with the Lord and building on your relationship with Him. Number two, you've stopped doing your spiritual disciplines. You've stopped memorizing and meditating on Scripture. You've stopped reading Scripture. And so therefore, your relationship is not being kindled. So therefore, you have nothing to share. Or number three, maybe you're just not involved in a local church. The local church is the place where we come and we sing and see the gospel together. It's a place where we come for refreshing and equipping so that we go out and the gospel passes our lips to the broken world around us. That's how the peoples will praise you, oh God. That's how the peoples will praise you. They'll praise you when you begin to speak. 
But the only reason you'll speak is because your love for God is so magnificent. So what do we do? Number three. Number three, we give. We give. I think there's a, a, a blessing in verses one and, and six that shows us about giving. God, be gracious to us and bless us and make your face shine upon us. Verse six, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. So one of the ways that we get the nations, get the gospel to the nations is we give. We give. William Carey, who became the father of modern day missions. I love William Carey. You should read his story. William Carey said, I'm, I'm going to go to the nations. And I understand that not everybody's called to the nations. But William Carey said this. He said, but I need you, church, to hold the rope. You fling me out there, but I need you to hold the rope. I need you to financially hold the rope. I need you to prayerfully hold the rope. I need you to shepherd me and hold the rope as I go to the darkest places of the earth with the good news and light of the gospel church. I need you to be a rope-holding church. And Center Church, I want us to be a church that is about holding the rope for our missionaries that are out there sharing the gospel. Perhaps... Uh, we had a couple of missionaries up here a couple of weeks ago, the O'Callaghan's from Honduras. Maybe, maybe God wants you to hold the rope financially. That God would say, use, use the blessing that I've given you as a means to advance my kingdom. We give. Perhaps what we need to start thinking, budget season's coming upon us. And one of the things that I would encourage us at Center Church to think through is, what portion of our budget should we be sending to a missionary agency? I would highly recommend we send to the International Mission Board. They do it the best and they have the greatest strategy. Send a portion of our own gifts, of our own harvest, through your tithes and offering to the nations. And we give a portion of what God has given and blessed this church with our harvest to the nation work. So let's give to the International Mission Board. But here's the other thing, church. If God calls... If God calls people out of this church to go, whether that be to plant a church or whether that be to go on mission, may we dedicate and may we commit ourselves to holding the rope when they go. We give. God has blessed you with whatever he's blessed you with as a means to advance his kingdom. That your way may be known. That your saving power among all the nations. And number four. We go. We go. A couple different ways that this can look in your life. Maybe you need to go on a short-term mission trip. Right now I'm working on three mission trips for this church. Well, two for this church, one for myself. I'm trying to get us uh, set up to where maybe we could do a vision trip over to Japan. I would love to show a couple of select few of you to go see Japanese culture and to just experience the brokenness and the lostness. My Adeline is already raising her hand. She's like, I'm ready to go, Dad. Just tell me the date. My bags are packed. Maybe you would want to join us as we kind of think through this and work through it. Maybe that's a place that you and I can, can go and see. Lord, how would you use Center Church to plant more churches and to be a missionary there to the Japanese lost people? Maybe you go on a short-term mission trip, but also maybe we send our children. I know what I did. Oh, what kind of sermon did this turn into? Got a little uncomfortable. You'll be interested to see what the idols of your heart are when they start to kind of wrestle against what the Lord's Word says, right? 
Maybe we need to start sending our children. Plan to send our children to the nations. There's a program that the International Mission Board does. It's called the Journeyman Program. And at the Journeyman Program, they take young professionals between the ages of 21 and 29, and they take them, send them on a two-year missionary journey overseas to another country or to another nation. And so after your children graduate college, say, hey, before you start your career and before life starts getting real and complicated, why don't you go spend two years with the IMB on, in the journeyman program and let's just see what the Lord might do through that. I have a couple of friends that they met as journeymen and then they went back to Japan as missionaries full time. Can I, can I stop right here and just say this? Church, you have to recognize when I say go, I want you to recognize that we go out even every day. That is why we say at the end of every service, you are sent. You are going. And here's the reality. If you're not trying to reach your neighbors, you will never try to reach the nations. The people who are closest to us in vicinity, if we're not trying to reach them with the good news of the gospel, we will never go to the ends of the earth. Send your children. I was walking this week with one of our children around the house. And the child looked at me and he asked, and I don't say their names because I don't want to pay them money. Every time they, their name comes out, I pay them a dollar. It's their royalty fee for me using them in a sermon. And so this uh, child looked at me and he said, Dad, what, what am I going to do with my life? I said, that's a great question, son. I'm glad you've come to me. There's three things I want you to think about. Number one, what has God gifted you with? So where's your gifting that you believe the Lord has given you? Number two, what is your passion What are you most passionate about with that gifting? And then number three, ask the question, how can you use that gifting and that passion to go to the nations and extend God's kingdom? That's all I said. Kind of gives you a wide range of fields, doesn't it? But the last way we go, maybe God wants you today to put your yes on the table. Maybe you're seeing the bigness and magnitude of who God is in Psalm 67, and he's saying, I blessed you with the greatest blessing of all, which is Jesus himself. And maybe God is calling some of you to give it all away, to throw away the American dream, to throw away the comforts of this world and take the good news to the nations. You might say, well, Jeremy, you're not going. Believe me, it's not because I haven't tried. Every time I pray and ask God to send our family to the nations, he always closes the door. And here's why I think he's doing that. I think he's saying, Jeremy, I can use you to send thousands instead of sending just you. I think my calling is to influence and equip you to be the ones to go so that center church will hold the rope as you go. But are you willing to put your yes on the table? Are you willing to say, yes, I will give it all away for the goodness and the greatness of my God who has blessed me most exponentially in his son, Jesus, and I will take him to the world no matter the cost. Because he is worth it. Why Paul says with confidence in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because I gain my Jesus for all eternity. I want to end with this story. Because I think somebody in here might be called to go to the mission field full time. When I was a youth pastor many moons ago, I didn't have this much gray hair then. We took these, I took our students to a place called Mission Fuge. And it was a missions camp where we would go and we would worship together at night, but then we would send them out into these cities throughout the week and the day to serve and do missionary work in these large cities. We went to Nashville and Charleston and other places. And they would go and they would serve the community to share the gospel. 
On Thursday, at the end of camp, every Thursday, what they would do is they would bring these baskets and they would set them before our campus pastor who was preaching and they would set them in front of the stage. And prior to going in our parent meetings and in our leadership meetings, we would, we would talk to our students like, hey, bring money, how much you feel that God has, since he's blessed you with a certain amount of, of money, we want you to bless others by coming up here and putting your money on that Thursday night in the offering buckets to send to the nations. I would, I would encourage them throughout the week. I'm like, hey, you know what? Maybe don't buy that candy bar or buy that other Mission Feud shirt. And why don't you save that money for Thursday night and you can give that to the nations. I'll never forget our campus pastor one Sunday, one summer. He, he came up and we were having our, our leader huddle. And he says, guys, I, I just got to share an amazing story with you. So a couple of weeks ago when we called people to come and to give, there was this young high school girl and she, I watched her, she got out from the back of the pew and she began to walk down and she had nothing in her hands and I was like, okay, maybe this is just a prayer time, I don't know what's about to happen. And she walked up to a basket at the front and she looked at that basket and she stepped in. Signifying and symbolizing to everybody in that room Everything that I have been given in Christ, I want to give my entire life to the nations. Could that be you this morning? My question is, have you even put your yes on the table for God to make that you this morning? So here's how we're going to close today. i got a song I want to introduce you to. And I want to introduce you to some of the nations. Some of the peoples who have zero access to the gospel. We're going to start out with a story by Matt Papa and then he's going to sing and as he sings he's going to pop up faces and you'll see people who need to hear the gospel and maybe God will stir within you a greater love for him to such, such magnitude that it will propel you on a mission to go to the nations. And as he begins to sing, here's what I want you to do. The song is called The Reward of His Suffering. And so when you feel ready and when you feel led, if you're a, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're in good standing with your church, and, 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 you, and you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then what I want you to do is during this song, come and partake in our communion. Just come up here. You can grab a piece of bread. You can drink one of the... This is all grape juice. All right? You can dip it, or you can drink it, whatever. And I want you to be reminded, as we think through these nations, that the reward of Jesus' suffering is them. That what we're partaking in, in the body and the blood of Jesus, is a gospel message to remind us that we need to take this body and blood of Jesus to the nations. Now here's the deal, if you're not a believer this morning, we don't want to ostracize you or call you out, but we ask that you not partake, because we believe this is something that symbolizes something serious for us as Christians. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, that's okay. We want to talk to you. Pastor Kyle and I want to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and see you follow him and give your life to him in faith and put, be baptized. And then the next time we do this, you join us as a brother and sister in Christ. But until then, just refrain. And it's not because we're trying to hurt you. It's because we love you. But if you're a believer, use this as a means to think about the nations and ask God, God, would you send me with the good news of Jesus? I'm going to pray. And then you watch the video and you respond as the Lord leads in communion. Father, we thank you for your word, for its accuracy, its integrity, and its clarity. And now we ask, Father, that you would use it in only ways that you can. To stir hearts, change lives, and give us an urgency for the mission to go to the nations with the good news.
of Jesus. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.